Hello everyone, it's your podcast producer and host Casey Callanan. Since 2021, I've had the honor to host this show and today we celebrate 100 episodes. In this special edition of the Healthcare Experience Matters podcast, we will be highlighting six of the most popular episodes as gone by the download and YouTube view numbers. So first up, we'll be hearing from Tammy Chang, Dr. Tammy Chang, checking in on the importance of mental health. Following that will be a clip from Practicing Emotional Intelligence as a Healthcare Provider, an interview with Dr. Paul Glisson. And then after that, we'll hear from Dr. Casey Gibson on the BATH technique. Following Dr. Gibson's clip, we will hear from Jeff Robbins. And Jeff will be talking about how we can keep it simple to drive excellent patient experiences. We will hear from Dr. Timothy C. Morrison talking about how we can better address burnout among medical assistants. And finally, we'll hear from Dr. David Zoss on a very emotional interview on his reflections of a transformation from being a physician leader to a patient and back. As a friendly reminder, if you want to listen to the full episodes, I will be placing links to the entire episode in the description of today's podcast. Thank you so much for being a loyal listener to this program. And here's to the next 100 episodes of the Healthcare Experience Matters podcast. You're actually hitting upon a topic I'm I'm so, so passionate about. And it's because I, I think it mental health knows no bound there's no boundaries it's it affects every single one of us as human beings and that's the patients that's employees that's healthcare workers it's physicians it's nurses it's leaders it's executive leaders it and we've seen that right we've seen it the reality we're almost we're two years into this pandemic and we have really truly seen the levels of distress in healthcare um and honestly levels of distress in our in our mental health across the board so I, it, it's actually kind of a rare example when someone isn't, isn't, or hasn't been struggling with something on some level, whether, whether it's a true, you know, it, whether it's actually diagnostic of a mental health concern or even just symptoms of it. So it could be feeling blue, just blah, or feeling anxious. If you actually look at the current, the most recent surveys that have come out, at least among physicians, I know the physician data really well. And that's over over ninety percent of physicians are actually reporting symptoms of depression or anxiety, right? And I mean that's almost everyone. And reality is, I, I think that's the case in our population as a whole. And so, of course, we, I think that's actually one of the greatest things we can do to help our patients and communities now, regardless of whether it's a virtual visit or it's in person. A big part of what we do is in our healing is actually just that interaction and creating that safe and supportive space for our patients. And that in itself is, is the opening piece, right? To be able to discuss or even bring up mental health and mental, mental health support, because honestly, everyone needs it. Yeah. And I want to ask you about another piece of data here that I found alarming when I was doing some pre-show reading before our interview today, I came across a stat that said 40% of women physicians either go part-time or leave medicine outright within six years of completing their residency. First of all, is this true? And why do you think this happens and what can be done? 
Yeah, this is the big question right now. That study was done a couple of years ago and was published in the double AMC. So it was a small study, but it really is 40% of women physicians and it's six years out of residency training. So it's not even taking into account those who go on to do a fellowship. Like I did an extra three years of training. So we're talking about young, young physicians. And we're finally 50, well, finally 50, 50, pretty much 51% of students in medical schools are actually women now, which is a big deal. We want to, we want equity, you know, we just, we just want it equal, <laughs> right? Equity. Um, but women, we're only a third of the, the workforce as physicians. So women are, are clearly quitting and, and not lasting. And I think your question about why is, is actually quite complex and there are multiple factors. There's actually a really great uh, study that just got published a couple of weeks ago in Harvard Business Review, and they cite multiple different factors. And I, I think it's complex as well. It, it, it goes as far as culture, right? The culture of our workplaces. Are we supportive of working mothers? But in particular, uh, that you're reaching the, the six years out of training most, are, most women are trying to start a family or have young children. So are, is there support for working mothers in the workplace? Is there maternal wall bias? Is there gender bias? Is there support? Are, is there flexibility in the workplace? I think that's a big one for working, working parents, regardless of the gender now yeah. is just having that flexibility. Is that, does that exist? Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and are women in physicians, we're talking about women physicians here, are they able to disconnect from work and are there pressures to continue to work? even when they're not at work. And then ultimately there becomes a tipping point, right? Of how much any one human being can take. There is no downtime. If they're not finding that downtime or that balance in any way, that's a, that's a huge issue too. So I, there's multiple factors there. Well, for me, emotional intelligence uh, has to do with the people skills. And you uh, I've trained your whole life in medicine to be uh, connecting the dots between a diagnosis and a treatment plan and uh, the science behind that, being able to validate uh, evidence and make rational decisions based on that. Uh, Emotional intelligence gets to the people connection and um, being self-aware of your environment, self-aware of yourself, uh, self-aware of the people that you're dealing with and being able to listen and uh, make decisions based on your situation. So that's what it boils down to for me. And what sparked your interest in this field of emotional intelligence or, or this way of life of emotional intelligence? Well, Casey, what sparks all innovation and progress in human evolution is failure. Uh, and I've had some epic, epic failures uh, when I should have used emotional intelligence. And I went back and, and analyzed those and said, where did the wheels come off? And it wasn't that I had my facts wrong or that I had the presentation wrong or or that had a, a wrong plan, it's that I did not read uh, the situation that was going on. I did not really connect with the people that I was working with. And because of that, it, nothing else of the science mattered. It had to do with my connection and it was a, a failure. Failure. So uh, those failures push you forward and make you learn uh, where you want to do things better. I can definitely appreciate that. So how would you define the Bath technique to someone who's actually never heard of it before? Sure. So the Bath technique 
is just a tool that you can use during an appointment. And so this was designed, or you could guess use the words created back in the 90s by Dr. Lieberman and Dr. Stewart. And it is just an easy way, usually with less than a minute uh, after lots of practice, a way to let a patient tell their story, um, a way for them to be able to um, describe what they're feeling, um, maybe name their emotions. And I, and I think as a society, we definitely struggle with naming our emotions and knowing how to process those emotions and how to deal with them. So I was doing some reading before today's broadcast, and I had come across a reading that this procedure is a, t- only takes about a minute or so. So I, I'm just going to challenge that and say, is it really possible to connect meaningfully with patients and you know screen for mental health problems in that brief window of time? I definitely believe so. So, you know, if you look at the research and um, definitely talking about this uh, technique only takes less than a minute, but everywhere I've seen definitely says it takes practice, right? You're not going to come out of the, out of it and just go into it and be able to do it in under a minute. So just kind of going through that. So what is the bathe technique? So if we break it down, so first it's background and it doesn't have to be for a patient, uh, tell me the background of the problem. It can be as simple as why don't you tell me what's going on with you today? Or, you know, give me something challenging that's going on in your life at this time. The second part of that is how is it affecting you? How does that make you feel? And again, that comes back to somebody naming the emotion. So once you can name the emotion, then you really can have insight into yourself and then you can connect on how that is affecting you daily. So next is going to be trouble. So what is troubling you the most? So it's kind of like when you're asking somebody, you know, where does it hurt? And they just point to their abdomen. It's kind of like, well, can you use one finger and point to where the pain's the worst? And that's kind of where trouble comes in. So what is the one thing about this situation? The one thing about this problem that's really troubling you the most And then next is, okay, so we've identified the background, we've identified the emotion or how it's affecting us. And then now we know it's troubling us the most, but how are we handling that? So, you know, maybe you're handling it well, and we're just having a session where you can process out those feelings and talk about them out loud. And that's great. Um, maybe you feel like, no, I'm not handling it well. And that's where this part comes through. Again, it's allowing a patient to, and I go back to tell their story, right? So that's what we're trying to have them do out loud is tell the story of this problem, but really identify what is it that bothers me the most and how am I dealing with that? The last thing to really do is to follow that up with some empathy. And that is just a general statement. That must be really tough. You know what? I'd be frustrated too in that situation. I can tell that this makes you very angry. And so that statement can just hang there. I think as physicians, we like to be fixers. 
And so we want to come in and we're like, well, you could do this or you could do that. And maybe it is appropriate to move into that part. But at the same time, just having an empathetic statement and leaving it out there, that in itself shows a lot of empathy. It shows an understanding. It is a, I see you and hear you statement. And a lot of times that's all a patient needs is they just want to be heard. They want to be able to tell their story and they want to know that they're not alone and that somebody else understands what they're going through. Patient experience isn't can be overwhelming, but you can figure out that one small thing that can turn it all around. And that's, that's kind of what became my passion. Like this is interesting and it's fun and it was helping, helping providers enjoy their, bring more joy to their practice, you know, and, and helping patients in the same, in the same stroke. And what drives that passion of yours for actually improving the patient experience? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, I think we all have personal stories. Um, you know, my mother uh, struggled with uh, depression and cardiovascular heart disease. And so I really spent a lot of time with my mother in a hospital setting. And um, one story in particular that really touched me is when she was going in for um, a heart valve repair slash replace. When we met with a physician, like a pre-op check, and, and really the visit was um, really kind of clunky and not really, didn't really feel good. And I was in the patient experience department. So I was like always critiquing, always trying to get better and, and coach physicians, but it just felt like um, um, it didn't feel good. So when we go into the surgery and the surgery doesn't go well and things are going down the, down the tubes. And so this is when I see the surgeon come in and become this, this really compassionate human friend of mine is like, Hey, he was connecting with me, connecting with my family. It was like a really, and the whole entire staff was becoming like this really intense, close family when my mom was struggling. And so that really felt good. And she ended up not surviving the surgery. And so when I guess what I learned in this moment is like when, um, and you see these her- heroes trying to save your mom's life, right? It's it's moving, and when things don't go well, it's when all everybody becomes like this team and this togetherness, and just felt really good. And I I, I want that to happen when it's just a pre-op visit or a, a checkup or or you're talking about whatever. You know, it's like. It's, it's a shame when things when things go south, it, everybody kind of gets that humanity and that, that compassion and empathy, but we really don't have it in our in our toolbox day to day. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what um, that's one really personal story that really impacted me and and you know my mom had the worst outcome you could have. Um, and then however, the patient experience itself was fantastic. you know she was was uh, sedated and asleep and paralyzed and didn't know what was going on. But as a family, the family is involved in the patient experience. And it it really was, uh, it was amazing, even though she didn't survive. Now I want to ask a little bit about a recent study that you co-authored. It's entitled Factors Affecting Burnout Among Medical Assistants. So how was this research conducted that went into this 
And quite frankly, what did we learn from it? Well, the research was conducted by surveying medical assistants across Stanford Healthcare. And we took a professional fulfillment and burnout tool that has been used with physicians for several years to measure physicians' professional fulfillment and burnout. And there's a lot of literature about the increasing burnout among physicians in our world. I think a lot of people are very familiar with that. But nobody had studied medical assistants and asked, what about medical assistants' burnout and fulfillment? And so we took the opportunity to to do that. And so the first important thing about the research was we were able to validate that the tool was reliable to use with medical assistants. And this is really good news because now we can use a tool across multiple disciplines. In addition, the data for our medical assistants showed us that medical assistants actually had higher professional fulfillment and lower burnout than physicians from from those studies. We asked some questions about how medical assistants cope, what they know about communication strategies, and how do they stay healthy and engaged. Probably should have entitled the study Professional Fulfillment Among Medical Assistants because that's really what they showed us is they're, they're quite professionally fulfilled. We learned that they have really good coping strategies when they're feeling stressed. They take walks, take breaks, they rely on their family and friends, they pray. And they don't engage really in destructive coping strategies. So I think this also suggests that perhaps these these kinds of coping strategies are what impacts lower burnout. And maybe we can all learn from this profession, this group of professionals, about how they're staying fulfilled and productive in a very stressful work environment. And we're calling this podcast episode Reflections of Transformation from a Physician Leader to Patient and Back. That gives us a little foreshadowing on what today's discussion is going to be about. I'm going to ask you to tell us about that day. Your life changed forever. Just describe for us what happened. Yeah. So like many physicians, physician leaders, right? I'm traditionally not a very good patient. Didn't think I needed to see a primary care physician. I was married to a physician uh, and worked uh, closely. But in January of 2017, I knew something was wrong. I knew for several weeks that I didn't feel right, that I was fatigued, that I was short of breath, that I was developing a skin rash, figured I was getting old. I was 45, so I needed to uh, maybe spend more time in the gym, but it continued to get harder. Again, not probably the best advice, but really saw a friend and a colleague was concerned that I had leukemia based on a lot of my symptoms asked him to draw some labs. And unfortunately, my clinical diagnostic skills were too good. Uh, And on Valentine's Day of 2017, I opened up my chart to see my lab results and realized that I was anemic, my white count was elevated, my platelets were low, and that my diagnosis was right and that I most likely had leukemia, which had been led to those last several weeks of symptoms. I had never been sick a day in my life. Uh, I had never routinely seen physicians outside of orthopedic surgery injuries um, that we've all encountered over time. And your world changes on the dime uh, when all of a sudden you go from being a 45-year-old with two 
adolescent boys working too many hours, but life going really, really well in personally and professionally to looking at a diagnosis in your own mortality. Uh, and it's hard to describe the emotions that race through your mind at that moment to realize that no, all that stuff that you worry about that you've been working for for years is no longer as important as it was. And that, right, the playing field has shifted and your priorities have changed and your worries when you're worried up that day trying to go through your to-do list and, and meetings and others. And now your worries shift to say, right, am I going to beat this? Am I going to live to see my kids grow up? Am I going to see them graduate high school and get married and all those milestones we think of uh, and knowing that as a physician, in some ways, you know too much because you understand the severity. But as a pulmonologist and not an oncologist, right, I really know very little uh, about the diagnosis that I just made. So, uh, Again, really fortunate to have so many uh, close friends, family, uh, an amazing wife and, and children that supported me through that, uh, as well as an amazing team at work. But clearly a day that shocked the system uh, and really changed me forever. And you mentioned that healthcare providers traditionally do not make the best patients. I'm curious as to why, why you have that perspective. <sighs> You know, I, I think, and again, probably a, a sense of hubris as a, a physician that we know enough that we tend to really push our independence. We don't like to always rely on others. And, and being honest, right, I was, I was good at keeping myself in shape uh, and taking care of myself, but I wasn't good at recognizing that I needed help from others because that wasn't what our culture had created uh, over the years. But that day, it really changed. And I really learned that to be successful, right, I needed that team. Uh, I needed not only the physicians and the nurses, but I needed my wife and kids and parents, and I needed my colleagues at work to say, how do I step out of the role as a hospital CEO so I can take care of myself and my family over the next six months? But there's some really good lessons in there, right, around we are so much better when we are dependent on our teams, when we don't try to do it all ourselves. When we realize that, you know, we need others help and others really want to help. Um, and I really embrace that as a patient um, in terms of embracing transparency around my illness, understanding the sincerity when people offered help, that they really wanted to help and I needed it and that it was important for them and for me to be willing to accept that help. So now I reflect as a leader, right, over four years, beyond almost four and a half years now, beyond that date of, uh, right, how do you maintain that ability to really bring people in and to be truly accepting help of others and that it's good for them and good for me? Can you tell us about some of your fears and worries as a patient? What was going through your mind? So... As a physician, I realized quickly 
that this was a medical emergency. I was admitted to the hospital the next morning, quickly moved up to Johns Hopkins to enroll in a phase one trial. When I realized that I had every poor prognostic sign and that with traditional treatments, that my survival was less than 20%. That ability and that desire to, you know, ensure that I was doing everything I could to survive as much for my wife and kids, more so than for me, to want to see those milestones. Part of that for me was the ability to really reach out and find that opportunity of research and innovation for something that may give me better odds than traditional therapies. What I didn't realize was that, you know, leaving home for the next six months would separate me so much from my family that was so much that I was fighting for. As a physician, right, I spend lots of nights in the hospital. I used to love working ICU nights as a physician, my favorite time in the hospital. As a patient, I hated nights in the hospital. I made my wife go home. She needed to take care of herself. She needed to sleep and stay with a friend. The staff was outstanding, but the rooms are cold. The beds aren't comfortable. Your mind is racing. All the thoughts that you try to push to the side would come back in as you sit there and worry around, were you going to live to see those moments? Was your wife gonna be a single mom trying to raise two kids? And no matter how much you don't wanna think about all the negative and the risk, At night, I couldn't push those thoughts away. It also timed up that by far, that was when I felt the worst. The drenching sweats, the physical discomfort, the pain seemed to be worse. Uh, And together, both the physical symptoms, the emotional stress of not being able to suppress those thoughts, And even for those few hours at night, realizing, right, you were there in your room was really, really difficult uh, and something that I probably had never imagined. And it wasn't that, and the staff was in the team and the nurses were unbelievable. But I myself realized, right, all of my fears couldn't be pushed away Um, at the same point. It helped me figure out, you know, I need to have a strategy of how I'm going to move forward. I needed to figure out what I can control. I couldn't decide whether I was going to be successful or not. I couldn't decide whether I was going to live or die. It was out of my control. I had amazing physicians. I had access to care and a phase one research that eventually got breakthrough status by the FDA. But what could I do, right? I could focus on my own care of how what I could be physically and mentally tough enough to do whatever was needed. And I channeled that energy into 
getting up every morning between six and seven, trying to walk six miles a day in the hospital or on the stationary bike, no matter what I felt like, no matter how bad I was, in order to ensure, right, that I was doing everything I could. I wasn't going to let my kids down. I couldn't guarantee success, but I could outwork anyone in order to ensure that I was able to do give to make those odds as good as possible. All this empathy that you were able to gain for the patient experience, how does that impact your role right now as the CEO of Medical University of South Carolina Charleston Division as a as a provider, as, as how you work with other healthcare providers, how does what you learned as a patient and all that empathy you gained, how does that impact your role now? So I, I think it fundamentally changes all of us, right? It's impossible not to be impacted by such a, a journey, by not just the fear of your own mortality, but by the experience inside the hospital, outside the hospital. As a pulmonary physician and a hospital CEO, I would have thought I was patient-centered. And and I really believe I was sincere, but I think the perspective and definition of patient-centered changes. The patients aren't our only customer. The patients and families are going through this together. My wife and kids went through the same journey I did, in some ways harder than what I had to do. As a leader and as a physician, do I always, have I always considered the families, our customer as much as the patient? And how would we deliver care differently if we realized that, right, and I keep using the word customer to be provocative a little bit, but patients are our customer. Uh, in the most respectful way, but the patients and families are our customer and we need to meet all of their needs, which is not just the ability to provide outstanding care, right? It's communication, it's support, it's how you develop trust, Uh, realizing that as much as the physical challenges that I went through over six months right? The psychological and emotional challenges are significantly larger. I tell my wife, I said, I could do this six times, right? I I could survive physically and do that over and over again. And I would go do it again. And I wouldn't say no. Physically, not a problem. Emotionally and psychologically, I would need to really prepare myself and them because it's hard. The second piece as an academic physician scientist that's changed my mind a little bit is and I used to be a you know always envisioning research as a way that patients were giving back to help others. I'll be honest, I took a risk and enrolled in a phase one trial because I was selfish. I wanted to do everything I can for my family and myself to improve my chances to survive. And the fact that it helped others is great, but my motivation was that I didn't want to die. Uh, And I think it's important that we realize that that psychological importance for me of feeling like I have done everything I can was absolutely critical. The night I drove from Durham up to Baltimore, 
And my oncologist came into the floor and met with us at midnight and described the treatment plan and the clinical research and that my 13-year-old son would be the donor for a bone marrow transplant. I looked at my wife and I said, whether I live or die, I am okay. And she said, you're not giving up. And I said, I am not giving up in the least bit. But psychologically, emotionally, I have complete trust in the amazing care that we had at Duke and at Hopkins, that we had a path and that I was doing absolutely everything I could within my power. And I needed that in my mind in order to get through that battle. Um, that component of trust and that component of really feeling that I had no doubt that I was doing everything I could. So how does that change you? I'm being long to get back to your question as a leader, right? How do we give that to every patient? How do we ensure that what patients and families want is trust? And what patients and families want is to feel that they have done everything that they can in order to achieve their desired goals, whatever their goals may be. And I don't think we teach that. I don't think we teach that in med school or, or leaders. We talk about tactics, but I think we really need to think about the why and what we what, what are patients and families looking from within their engagement within hospitals, health systems, and their care teams. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Healthcare Experience Matters. Healthcare Experience Matters is brought to you by the Healthcare Experience Foundation. To learn more, please visit healthcareexperience.org. That's healthcareexperience.org.